0: This morning, uh, Patty Terry mentioned to me that uh, Thursday night was very special. She felt like it, like she was in the upper room, and Roma told me it was sacred space um, and i didn 't think those exact terms, but that 's exactly how I felt about Thursday night and you know I have this feeling this morning i 'm not one to experience joy you know every morning, but I have that, that, I don't know, that Easter feeling about this morning. And and, uh, part of it, well, most of it is you. Uh, Thank you for the flowers. They're beautiful. That enhances the joy. But you know that you are God's flowers and fragrance of his garden. And that your presence here is the greatest source of joy. Um, You know, that, that, that and the fact that we're all here with God. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is rolling along with his disciples. And in verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. And a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son. And the large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. People were constantly coming to Jesus for a miracle. Some people came hoping that he would heal them. Others came and begged him to heal a friend, a servant, a child. In the same chapter, a group of Jewish elders from one town argued on behalf of a centurion that Jesus would heal his slave. He says, if anyone deserves your help, he does, for he loves the Jewish people and even built us a synagogue. When John describes the first miracle that Jesus did in Cana, it is as if, Jesus' mother practically coerced him to intervene at the wedding feast. All these people after Jesus to get him to do something. But when he saw the widow, no one had to ask for his help. His own heart compelled him to go to her. He did not need to hear her story. Perhaps he was able to to read it. There was no man, no husband with her, no other children running around, just the widow and her son and the crowd from town. She did not need any endorsements, anyone to tell Jesus how worthy she was. He could see her desolation. He could could see it in her posture, in her face. He could hear it in her sobs. He knew the emptiness of her soul and its agony, and his heart would not allow him to leave her like this. He was right there. He had to do something. I would assume that every one of us has heard someone say to another person, don't cry. What logical assumption would a person have for saying this? Don't cry. Well, if crying really isn't necessary, if, um, if the situation is not really as bad as it looks, or you don't have to cry um, because um, everything is actually uh, not all that bad. Or someone might say, don't cry. Uh, over what's happened just now. Your circumstances will change. Things will get better. Everything's going to be all right. So don't cry. You don't need to cry. It gets better. Or it could be the opposite. Don't cry. Things could be a whole lot worse, you know. (laughs) Sometimes it's a lame attempt at comfort. Um, I really don't know what else to tell you. I want to say something that will give you solace, don't cry. I I just don't know what else to say. Someone might say, don't cry. There's no use in it. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't help. Of course, that's not true. Depending on what kind of help you're looking for, sometimes just getting it out can be a great relief. Not always, but sometimes. Another person will say, "Don't cry, <coughs> toughen up for heaven's sake. Um, stop all this uh, sniveling and sobbing and nonsense, um, you know or if you are going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> as is, as if pain, physical pain is the only reason why people cry, uh, the only reason why a child cries. I think children cry more out of frustration, disappointment, um, having to wait five minutes than, than <laughs> any physical pain. Now, typically, the person who says, don't cry, toughen up, does not know the difference between tough and strong. The strong person can cry. Um, I did a memorial service a few years ago for a very lovely person. And her, um, her brother happened to be a Superior Court judge. Uh, the Orange County chief of uh, uh, police was also there. And they both spoke. And they both were very funny. Her brother faked a phone conversation with her in heaven that was hilarious. So when I got up to deliver my message, um I, first of all, turned to him and I said, Judge, I would really like to have you speak at my memorial because you put the fun in funeral. And, uh, okay, it was inappropriate, but that was the direction it was going anyway. Now, um, uh, Brad Gates happened to be the sheriff at that time. And he he said... Well, you know, us guys, we uh, we have to laugh and we have to make jokes um, because we have to, you know, still get up and go to work. And so uh, I acknowledged him also in that statement, and I said, uh, I fully agree with that statement. That's why women are so much stronger than we are, <laughs> because they can break down and cry and still go on and work. Um, And that's strength, is when you can keep going in spite of everything. Uh, Tough is bravado. It's putting on a show of strength when it's not really there. Uh, My uncle asked me to do that. I was three years old. I was in his body shop. And uh, he and my dad and some of his friends were standing around talking. And I saw this interesting thing that looked like a gun. Um, It was hydraulic. It had a, a round a uh, sanding uh, wheel attached to it with sandpaper on it. And I pressed the trigger, and it went around in a circle and took off a bunch of skin on my leg. <laughs> uh, so well, you know, what's a body shop for? But uh, <laughs> to fix your body. Uh, anyway, uh, he came over to me. He looked in my eyes. He, he grabbed my shoulders, and he said, be a man. Don't cry. Show my friends how strong you are. And I look at him, and everything in me said, what the hell? <laughs> I didn't say it out loud. I would have been slapped. But uh, uh, but I, I thought, I'm not even going to try. And my face just went into a cry. <laughs> and I let it go. And he was really disappointed with me. Uh, I didn't care then. Now I wish I had manned up. Manned up. <laughs> but okay, so um, in this particular instance, when Jesus is standing face to face with the widow and he says, "Don't cry," it's because he was about to remove the cause of her sorrow. So there is a logic behind it, and it's reasonable. If she knew anything about Jesus and she heard him say this, she'd know. Something wonderful is going to happen. I don't have to cry. I mean, Jesus Christ is the only person in the world who could say this to her. March has been a troubled month. I met Bill Goodrich when he started to bring uh, Patrick, a quadriplegic, to uh, church in Capo Beach. And uh, Bill was his caregiver at the time. Later. Uh, Bill and I worked together, um, and he became a friend to me and to my family. Uh, He traveled with us. He went with us on missions trips. He went with me one time, once or twice, to Israel. Uh, When I spent a month at a hermitage, he came up uh, to visit me. Two weeks ago, I learned that he was killed in a traffic accident in Thailand. Now, Bill had been fascinated with Thailand. He, um, he lived half of his life in Dana Point. Well, let me see. Uh, half of his life at the church, a quarter of his life in the, uh, uh, in the harbor, uh, sailing ships, and a quarter of his life in Thai This. And uh, he learned. He was learning to speak Thai. He had visited Thai. And when a friend of his died and left his Thai wife a widow just before he died, he asked Bill, take care of my wife. Bill was engaged to her, living in Thailand with her family. And last year, when we emailed back and forth, he said, we're saving up money to come to the States so you can perform our wedding. So it's a hard loss. R.J. Prescott and his wife, uh, Polly, began to attend Calvary Chapel of Dana Point uh, back in the day when there was such a thing. And um, they were bikers who rolled into our church parking lot one day. And I I will tell you, they are the perfect illustration of of that proverb, do not judge a book by the cover. They were wonderful, intelligent people. He was an engineer at San Onofre Nuclear Plant. And uh, yeah, they, uh, uh, every once in a while, went on these uh, biker rides for uh, benevolent humane causes. And one time, they did something very special for me. They shared their story publicly, that, that was for the entire church, of Troubles they had gone through in their marriage and how they had navigated them and come through them. Uh, Last year in August, Polly passed away uh, suddenly, and just before spring, the day before spring, RJ followed her. Uh, And he had been sick for a while. But you know, you don't want two deaths of people you've known for a long time and love to come that close together. I learned Friday about another person whose name I will respectfully keep to myself. He was also involved in the church. In fact, his wife worked on our staff. And uh, my oldest daughter was close friends with one of his daughters. And he died unexpectedly just this past week. That, that was my march. Um, and so um, I have to say I'm grateful to put the month of March behind me. But I'll never forget those who have passed. Every once in a while, one of my friends emails me a poem. And it's not unusual to get one at Easter time or um, Christmas time. This week, Ed Northern sent me a poem, and he included a photograph with it, one that he had taken in a cemetery in Maine. It's a bleak, black and white photo uh, of this uneven terrain with these stone monoliths jutting out of the ground, very much weathered and, and falling apart. He wrote the poem Easter Walk. I wander through a cemetery among the sepulchers where the dead are encased, among edifices of angels, crosses, stone markers etched with epitaphs, memories of lives lived lost, of hope in something more. This is the home of the dead. Even strong desires, heroic efforts, cannot bring them back. Two become one flesh and live out their long years, a son or daughter sacrificed to a war, a child lost to accident or illness. This is the country of our mortality, our final resting. Until corruptible becomes incorruptible. Until hope buried is no longer contained. Until the graves and the sea give up their dead. Until the earth and heavens split, and paradigms are obliterated. Until resurrection. There is. A hard edge to life. We come up against death as an impenetrable wall. Jesus' crucifixion is on the sharp line of that hard edge. It was wrong. It was excruciating. It was an injustice. The hard edge of life is perfectly outlined in the geometry of his cross. I look for a similar hard edge in his resurrection, but I can't find it. Not in our Christian tradition of colorful, bright banners and cheerful hymns, certainly not in our secular tradition of chocolate bunnies and dyed eggs. The edges of resurrection seem soft, like the pastels of the gray sky blurring with the horizon of this ocean. The edges of resurrection are blurred. We have experienced death, but we've never encountered someone who died and then returned in a new and glorious body. Years ago, a physician described The physiology of crucifixion, and I remember reading it and being horrified, uh, of all that Jesus suffered physically and what his body did automatically as uh, it was drained of its vital fluid and exhaustion took over and the pain of it was overwhelming, that Part of the story, the crucifixion, can be explored by science in that way. But the resurrection defies scientific investigation. It belongs to another order of reality where science cannot go, uh, boldly or otherwise. We don't believe in death. We know death. It's a certainty. It doesn't take faith. We can only know resurrection by faith. We can never be certain. Now, there's no need to be upset with ourselves if we find it hard to believe in life after death, in resurrection. Jesus told his disciples repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be rejected. I'll be beaten. I'll be crucified. And I'll rise again three days later. did not believe him when he said it. One time, Peter even uh, rebuked Jesus for saying such a thing. And not only did, did they not believe him, they did not even understand what he was saying. It made no sense to them. And even when on that first Easter, women came to the disciples from the tomb, saying that Jesus wasn't there, but an angel was, who told them that he had risen. Luke tells us that it sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. And later on, when they were all in a room and Jesus himself appeared to them, the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost, a Jesus ghost. And of course, there's Thomas, he said i won't believe it unless i see the nail wounds in his hands put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side for him jesus death had the hard edge of something that could be seen and touched and verified and he needed that kind of verification to believe in jesus resurrection which sounded to him at that time like a fairy tale. However, there are analogies, uh, things that we take for granted. We, we buy seed for our lawn or uh, to plant flowers in the planter or whatever else we're going to use seeds to grow in our garden. What we get when we buy the seed is a dead shell with a spark of life inside of it. And that little bit of life will reach for moisture. And that little bit of life is so strong, it will break through the dead outer shell and continue to grow as long as it's fed. Jesus Christ is that life so strong that it breaks through death. When Lazarus died and Jesus arrived at his home so that the glory of God would be manifest, in his conversation with Lazarus' sister, Martha, he said, your brother will live again. And she says, well, I know, I know. Yeah, there's this one wonderful day. Everyone rises. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That one line in scripture thrills me as much as anything the Bible says. I am the resurrection and life. If if we can feel that, we don't have to understand it. If we can feel the strength of that, then that little bit of life in us will also reach for that moisture of, of this living water and, and break through our own hard shell. And, and it will be the death of the old self and the beginning of the life of the new self. I mean, really, this is what we've already begun to experience. This is what we celebrate. And this is what we try to feed. This, this life of Jesus is so powerful. Peter says, death could not keep its grip on him. couple more statements from Jesus. To the disciples, he said, Since I live, you also will live. My resurrection is your resurrection. My life is your life. And as long as I live, and through whatever I go, whatever death I go into life, you will also live in me, with me, and me in you. To the crowds, he said, Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Rick Griffin one time uh, did this picture of a young Bob Dylan, uh, guitar in hand and harmonica strung around his neck, and he's stepping out of this dark circle into just a, a lighted background. This is this was an illustration for John's gospel of Dylan coming out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that's the image I get when I when I read this passage. We wait for the resurrection. But as we wait, we've already had an experience of the re- resurrection because of the new life of God in us. And in almost every Christian, I won't say all of us, but almost all of us, there was a moment on a particular day when we knew that we were in God and God was with in us, and suddenly, the, the world just was more vibrant with its color, with its shapes, with its breath of life. And we, we saw it. We, we knew it. That was the resurrection life of Christ energizing us with life There's no greater proof for the individual than personal experience. I don't care what anyone else says. I saw what I saw. I felt what I felt. I was there. And I have my experience of the event. Jesus healed a blind man, and it caused a ruckus because he healed him on the Sabbath day and touched it. And the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And all I have to say today, it's not do this, do that, you should, you ought. All I have to say today is trust that touch. Would you stand, please? May the Lord our God bless our lives in him. And may he bless that life he's put in us. And may the touch of Jesus on our lives today bring us to life, make us whole and increase the love that we have for him and for one another. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.